Gangster Redemption, Chapter 5. Diamonds are a guy's best friend. Larry Lawton's next robbery took place in Fort Lauderdale, his hometown. After casing the entire area, he picked out a promising store, which was a little different in that the jewelry cases were in the middle of the store and along the walls. He went in to look around and was able to locate the security buzzers. Two women worked in the store. On this beautiful sunny day, Lawton and his accomplices drove to the front of the store. As usual, he wasn't scared. But his palms were sweating and his adrenaline was pumping. Lawton liked the feeling of the adrenaline high. Over time, it would become addictive. It's, it's a high I can't explain. Lawton entered the store by himself. He announced the robbery and made both women employees lie down on the floor behind the counter. He tied them up with, a, with his plastic flex cuffs, walked to the front door, and nodded to his accomplice awaiting in the car to come in. The accomplice then helped him clean out the place. During the robbery, two customers walked into the store. Larry always looked good, so he walked up to the customers who had no idea a robbery was taking place, put the gun to them and said, this is a robbery, come with me. He walked them to the back of the store and tied them up. Two more came in and he tied them up. Then two more and two more and two more until he had 10 people tied up lying on the floor of the jewelry store. He was running out of flex cuffs, so when the last two customers came in, he was able to tie their hands, but not their legs. He told them not to move if they knew it was good for them. I never gagged anybody, uh, fear of uh, somebody choking. I just only tied them up so they were immobile, give me time to get away. Each time customers came in, he would ask them, is anyone waiting in the car for you? Do you have to be anywhere? Each time the answer was no. And then he'd tell them, close your eyes and don't, don't open them. If I catch you open your eyes, there'll be trouble. Lord never put a gag in anyone's mouth. He didn't want anyone choking to death. I never wanted to hurt anyone, ever, said Lawton. In all his robberies, Lawton took jewelry off a customer only once. If a woman was wearing a wedding ring, he never touched it. But on this day, one of the customers became belligerent. He started talking big, and so Lawton, wanted to make sure he wasn't a police officer, pulled the guy's wallet out of his pocket. There was no badge inside. The customer was wearing a gold bracelet, and Lawton, Lawton took it off and looked at it to see whether it was really made of gold. It wasn't, and it infuriated him. It was a fagazi. It was a fake. You phony piece of shit coming in here like you're some big shot, said Lawton. You have a fake fucking jewelry, you prick. Lawton threw the bracelet back at him. One of the tied up girls working in the store from behind the counter began to laugh. Lawton, concerned that someone might be waiting for one of the tied up customers, reminded himself to get going. I have to get out of here, Lawton said to himself. He and his accomplice emptied the place of jewels, went out the back door and kept driving all the way to New York. After his third heist, it occurred to him that if he didn't learn something about the value of diamonds, he would leave himself open to being robbed himself. There's a school in Manhattan called the Gemological Institute of America, the GIA, that teaches everything you'd ever want to know about diamonds. Lawton couldn't risk enrolling officially, but he was told that one of the teachers at the school taught a class 
for anyone who didn't want to know, be known he was taking his class. The instructor taught in his apartment three nights a week for two weeks. There were six other students in Larry's class where Larry earned his master's degree in diamonds. It's funny. They actually had a school for criminals to learn about diamonds. Think about that. It was in this class that Larry learned about the importance of the cut of a diamond. He pulled the felt out and he'd show you how different diamonds are cut, said Lawton. He demonstrated a round diamond, an oval diamond, and a princess cut. He explained why a round diamond was worth more than a marquee. It's easier to resell. The cut of the diamond is measured geometrically. 5.6 is a perfectly cut round diamond, depending on the size. A good diamond will have six facets. He showed us how the reflection of light works in a diamond. He took a diamond and put it under a table where there was no light. If it still reflects, he said, it's a good cut. He also taught us about color. The range starts at D and goes all the way up alphabetical scale. The lower the letter, the better it is. He showed us how a diamond expert can hide a chip. They are slick. They'll hide it under a facet or put filler in there to hide it. But with the proper cut, you can make an F diamond look like a D. I've seen one two carat diamond ring go for $7,000 and another one go for $100,000. Same size, but a different cut, clarity and color. Quality is everything in diamonds. His education complete, Larry Lawton then discovered the mother load of jewelry stores, H. Stern Jewelers, located in the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida. He paid the store a visit, masquerading as a wealthy contractor, and after a quick inventory, he determined the store held between 12 and $14 million in diamond, jewelry, in diamond and jewelry. This is my store, Lawton told himself. It had so much inventory, Lawton decided he needed to talk to his fence before doing anything further. The fence was well aware of H. Stern Jewelers. Lawton told the Genovese's, it's between 10 and 12 million, maybe 14 million, and I'm going to get my 40%. I want 40, 4 million for the job. They agreed. The deal provided that he would get a million dollars up front and a million every two months until he was paid off. They also advised him that if he pulled it off, he'd have to leave Florida for a while because the heat would be too great. Lawton began casing the store from a piano bar across the hotel lobby, watching to see who was coming in and out. In the mornings, he would act like a hotel resident. He'd put on his ba bathing suit and he'd walk through the hotel to the pool. And as he slowly walked around pretending to be a hotel guest, he watched to see when the employees came and when they left. He saw that the store manager arrived 30 minutes before the guard to open the store. Two other employees didn't come in until after the guard arrived, he saw. He would have a 30-minute window of opportunity. Lawton needed to be out of the store before the guard showed up. Lawton suspected the store had time lock on the safe. If there was one, he would have to wait until the manager opened the safe in the morning. Lawton watched every morning as the store manager put the jewelries out for display. Because of the time lock, Lawton couldn't do his job at night. If anyone tried to open it earlier than the regular time, a silent alarm would go off and the police would be right behind it. The only way he could pull this job off, he saw, was to kidnap the manager at his home at night and go with him to open the store in the morning. To find out where the store manager lived, one evening Lawton followed him from 
the fountain blew to Miami Beach north on I-95 to his home in Hollywood, Florida. After he saw where the manager lived, a nice house in a nice area, he went and bought the supplies to carry out the rest of his plan. I went and bought sticks that I painted to look like dynamite, said Lawton. I bought a clock and some wires. What I was going to do was enter his house at night and kidnap the guy. I was going to stay with him all night, strap the dynamite to him, and take him with me. While I did that, I was going to have my accomplice guard his wife and daughter. My accomplice would have a walkie-talkie. I was going to tell the manager, listen, you're coming with me. If you make one foolish move and this guy doesn't hear from me, he's going to kill your family, even if I get caught. He's going to kill your wife and kid. Is it worth it? I was going to strap the fake dynamite on him before he got into the car, and I'd tell him, if you do anything stupid, I'm going to run from here and blow you up. If you try to wait, have a traffic accident with me and the cops come, I'm going to walk away and blow you up. If you're in the car and I see you make any move to attract attention from the cops, I'm going to get out and blow you up and your family will die. I figured since he was only the store manager, it wasn't his diamonds and he'd give them up. I wasn't really going to kill anyone. After robbing the diamonds, I was going to call my accomplice and say, leave. I'd be out of Florida on my way to New York before anybody knew what hit him. His $4 million cut was going to be Lawton's retirement score. He had no worries about the Jenny VC stiffing him. Dominic Ganji's cut was 400000 and there would, would have been a mob war if the Genovese's tried something funny and didn't pay. The night before the planned robbery, Lawton and his accomplice, carrying his bag of props ready to go, waited in the bushes of the store manager's home. The robbery was a go. The plan was to knock on the door, and when the manager opened the door, rush in and take him and his family hostage. Lawton's heart was beating. This was the biggest score, but it also was his most dangerous. So much could go wrong. As he and his accomplice crouched outside the home, a neighbor came walking by with his dog, who growled at them. And that spooked me, said Lawton. Call it a gut feeling. The growling of the dog broke the spell. Lawton, in an instant, decided the plan was too risky, and he called it off. And luckily, that happened, because kidnapping is a crime that has no statute of limitations. If I would have did that crime, I could have never had a statute. All the crimes I committed have a five-year statute of limitations. This does not. Kidnapping does not. Thank God I didn't do it. There was somebody looking over me for that one. Though he passed on the $4 million from the H. Stern robbery, Larry still had enough money to become king of Fort Lauderdale. His two favorite passions were sex and gambling, and with the money from his jewelry robberies, he had hundreds of thousands of dollars to indulge himself with both. I was living the good life. I'd go out every night. I had a wife at home. I was getting a blowjob from my secretary. I had a gomada, a girlfriend. I had a gorgeous hookah, Teresa, and I'd be banging other broads all day. I had orgies with couples, and I didn't know how I did it. He indulged his every whim. I went fishing. I went scuba diving. I did all of that. If I wanted something, I bought it. I had a gold Rolex, gold chains. I had one chain on my arm that spelled out Larry and diamonds. I had it all. That's why when I went and robbed jewelry stores, I looked good and they thought he has money. I did. His neighbors knew Lawton was in the mob, but they didn't seem to care. Every 4th of July, he would throw a party for a thousand people. It was called Larry's 4th of July block party. The entire block was closed down. I hired a ride company that brought, brought the whip 
the bounce house, a trackless train, and a bunch of rides, he said. The mayor, I was the godfather to his son, and other city officials came. I had so much pull with the city that they brought porta johns. They shut the street off. No permits. The fire truck came, and they don't usually bring the fire truck to parties. I had it brought there for the kids. I had clowns painting kids' faces. I had Barney the Purple Dinosaur. I had a band and a DJ. I supplied 10 kegs of beer, 40 cases of soda, 1,000 hot dogs, 1,000 hamburgers, 600 ears of corn. I held a car show, all free for the neighborhood. I didn't want any money, no donations, and I even donated money to charity. I knew a radio disc jockey, Larry Brewer from Melbourne, Florida, a city where my parents lived, and I'd say to him, tell me a home for abused kids that is in need, and he would tell me, and I would go to Toys R Us and buy $2,000 worth of toys for the children in the house. One time I visited the house and I saw the kids didn't have sneakers. I bought them all sneakers. Call it my Robin Hood complex. I was generous and people called me Robin Hood. The neighborhood knew I was in the mob. They knew I didn't work, had all the money in the world. They assumed I was a drug dealer, which I wasn't. No one knew exactly what I did, which was the way I wanted it. Lawton still had the bug for gambling and loved the action in the casinos. He traveled to the Bahamas, Las Vegas, Atlantic City to gamble. I would go all of these places com and comped. I didn't pay for a thing. Once at the casinos in the Bahamas, I lost $10,000 in 20 minutes, all the money I brought. I called Fat Tony, my right-hand man. I had a safe in my house, and I always kept big money there. My wife didn't even have the combination to the safe. That's just the way we did it. My buddy, Fat Tony, had it. Tony, go to the safe. Get 10 grand. Send Junior on a plane down here with 10,000. Junior was there the next morning, and I went back to gambling. Lawton had carte blanche at the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City. They'd fly him first class from anywhere. Anytime he was in Brooklyn and wanted to go, this casino would send a limousine for him. Two of the jet setters Lawton gambled with were Roger King of King World, Productions, and Pete Rose, baseball great and addicted gambler. I was getting the suites on the 49th floor. Roger King was getting the penthouse with butlers and cooks. Oprah, Oprah Winfrey used to work for him. I used to do coke with him up in his room, and I'd gamble with him in the casino in the high roller pit. One time, Roger and I were in the high roller pit, and we were drunk on Dom Perignon. He always had guys with him, like I did. He told one of his guys, Go to the cage and cash these chips in. They were worth about $250,000. The guy came back and said, Mr. King, they want your ID. Fuck my ID. He's not getting my ID. I'll buy this place and fire fucking Trump. He started climbing up on a chair. Roger, get down, Lord said to him. I kept saying, get down. He's on his chair in this big high row area. Cameras were all over the place, but nobody said a word, said Lawton. The pit bosses and dealers were looking at him. If you're a big shot... They don't care what you do. All they want is your money. I would do coke out with a little bottle right in the casino, even though there were a zillion cameras. If you're a big gambler, they don't care. I met Pete Rose through Roger. What a fucking junkie gambler Pete was. One night, Roger, Pete, and I were up in the hotel suite playing gin for $100 a hand. Pete didn't care what he, the game was. He just wanted to gamble. Pete's a competitor. I know he gambled right from the beginning but he gambled on his own team to win. 
He never bet against his team. He wanted to win at all costs. He was wrong because he might let his pitcher go a couple more innings. You're not looking at the bigger picture, but he was such a competitor. I never met a competitor like him. He'd bet roulette, blackjack, gin. He'd bet on two cockroaches walking up the wall. He didn't care what he played. He wanted to gamble. He had a real disease. Lawton's riches also allowed him to indulge in his every whim. As a child, Lawton had been small, so small that at age 12, his grandfather sent him to Florida for a couple of weeks so he could learn how to become a jockey. Yeah, I know. This 250-pound guy now is a jockey. Yes, it's true. Lawton always had a fondness for horses, and one afternoon while at home, he was watching the movie Lonesome Dove. When he called up his associate, Fat Tony, and said to him, Get the car. We're going to buy a horse. What track are they running at? He asked. Not a racehorse, a horse, said Lawton. What track? No, it's a riding horse, you fucking nut. A trotter. Shut up. Get over here with the car. Fat Tony drove over and picked Lawton up. They were in a Cadillac, and they drove up to the Triple Cross Ranch in Davie, Florida. Lawton had seen the sign, We Sell Horses. The three crosses out front made it look like a KK ranch, but it was actually a ranch owned by a devout Christian. The guy was a great guy. We went to the back to see a guy by the name of Mike Fletcher, who was a champion bronc rider. Here came two guys with New York accents dressed in slacks and $200 loafers in a Cadillac. Can you imagine what must have been thinking going through his mind? Listen, I'm looking to buy a horse, Lawton said. Are you for real? If I buy a horse, you have to show me how to ride it. I haven't been on a horse since I was 12. Mike said, okay. Said Lawton. I went looking for one horse, and he ended up selling me two horses. I couldn't ride alone. I bought two saddles, a trailer, the whole fucking thing, $10,000 later, in cash. And then I gave him 600 a month to board the horses and muck the stalls. And if I came down to saddle them, sometimes I'd get stoned on coke or weed and ride around like a nut. But I loved his, the horses, all because I watched the movie Lonesome Dove. What are you going to buy next, Fat Tony wanted to know. The answer, a boat. There's an expression. The two best days of a person's life is when they buy a boat and when he sell it. Too bad Lawton had never heard that expression. Lawton had a buddy named Nicky who owned a gas station in Brooklyn. Nicky was a mobster and he brought Lawton to a wholesale dealer who sold him a 26-foot cabin cruiser at the auction. Lawton attached the boat and trailer to his new van for a trip to... Scenic Lake George, New York. They got on the highway, and the first thing that happened was that an axle on the trailer snapped, and one of the tires fell off. Luckily, the boat didn't come off the trailer. What a trip this was. Here we are sitting on the side of the road, not knowing what to do, said Lawton. We called the tow service, and they towed the boat and trailer on a flatbed to a repair place, where it cost me a thousand bucks to fix it. Continue on the trip, it turned out that Lawton hadn't hooked up the trailer right. They hit a bump, and the trailer came off the hitch, landing on the roadway, making a deep gouge in the tarmac, and when Lawton hit the brake, the boat kept going and smashed in the back of the door of his new van. Fortunately, the chains held, saving the boat. The boat actually jumped up off the trailer, went back, the chains got tight, pulled it, and the boat went right into the, into the van. It's crazy. I'm the only man who had a boat hit his van. Lawton stopped, and he and his three cohorts got put the hitch back on and drove to Lake George in his dented van. We got the boat to Lake George, he said. We rented an island there. It was a chance to get away. We put the boat in the water, headed towards our island, but we didn't open the seawater valve 
and we burned up the motor. The boat actually caught fire. We put the fire out, got towed back, and it cost another $4,500 to fix it. We went back to the island and we had a good time, but I ended up getting a ticket for not having a spotter in the boat while someone was water skiing. What a fucking disaster, that whole trip. Never forget it. The camping trip cost Lawton $10,000. He was so disgusted that when he got back to Brooklyn, he got rid of everything, including the boat and the new van. <laughs> Lawton worked at his jewelry store robbing business six weeks a year. Whenever his bankroll would drop below 40000 he knew it was time to get back in the car, discover America, and find a new jewelry store to rob. The biggest score came after Lawton drove around the wealthy Maryland suburbs of Washington, C.C., scouting jewelry stores. He settled on one in an area near Tyson's Corner. The jewelry store he was casing was closed on Monday, so on that day, Lawton drove to Washington to visit the White House and do some sightseeing. I'm a history buff, he said. Did you know I can name 44 presidents? I can name you every president who got killed in office and who killed him. Eight died in office. Four were assassinated. I know who the longest serving was, the tallest, the fattest. I'm kind of a savant. I can tell you how many countries there are in the world, their capitals, the smallest, the largest, and their populations. I love history, and that's why I went to the White House. I went to the White House with my binoculars, and when I looked up on the roof, I saw one of the Secret Service guys looking down on me with his binoculars. It was winter, a cold day, so I wore a jacket. I always made sure I had on a nice leather jacket or a long coat that makes you look like a businessman. The coat I wore that day was the one that long coats given to me by the Coast Guard. Big old pea coats. They're, they're really cool. The store near Tyson's Corner was perfect because there was construction going on in the mall plaza, which made it harder to see into the window of the jewelry store. In the front of the store was a boardwalk made of wood. The store had its display cases in the window, but they were covered in felt, so you couldn't see what was in there from outside the store, said Lauren. That's good for me. The store was made to be robbed. The owner of the store was a wholesaler, Lawton's preferred target. There were the jewelers who sold to other jewelry stores. The store owner in Maryland was selling to all little guys all around him. As soon as the store owner showed Lawton his box of loose diamonds, Lawton knew this was going to be a big score. The Maryland job was a two-man job. My accomplice was in the car. We stayed in a shitty hotel. I always stayed in shitty hotels, and I kept a low profile. I knew when I entered the store that there were two employees, a guy and a girl. First, I took down the guy. The girl wasn't going to give me any trouble. I tied them up with flex cuffs, pulled the bags out of my stomach, started filling them up, and then I walked right out the back into a construction site, a perfect spot. When there's a construction site, no one questions a thing when they see a car. I put the jewels in the car, and away I went. I always wished I was a fly on the wall to see how long it took them to get out of the flex cuffs and for the cops to arrive. I drove straight to Brooklyn, my typical MO. It was only about six hour trip. I called my fence on the way and told them I was coming. See you tomorrow at one. I stayed in a shitty little motel in Jersey just across from the George Washington Bridge. I took the jewelry out, spilled it out on the bed and looked at what I got. By the time I knew, quite a bit about diamonds, and I could see this was quite a haul. I brought them the diamonds, and the next day, at one sharp, they handed me $400,000 in $100 bills. That meant the jewels had been worth $1.1 at least. 
I got my usual, around 40 cents on the dollar, probably a little less. As I told you, I would always put my money aside for Dominic off the jump street. He got 50 grand in his envelope, and then I would pay off my crew. My accomplices made $70,000 each for that robber. For that robber, it was one guy, he made $70,000. I came home and counted my 300000 on the coffee table. I told my wife, you can keep anything under a 50. There were fives, tens, and twenties, sometimes because sometimes I'd steal cash out of the jewelry store register. Sometimes I'd get as much as $2,000 in small bills. I gave her five grand one time and she loved it. I'd tell her, go buy whatever you want. She never wanted for money.